0: to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer.
1: Hey, Elvis Knives. I'm Mariah Rose.
0: (laughs) Welcome back, everybody, to the new year. Happy new year.
1: Hey, thanks. Happy new year to you. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good. We took our first ever week off after two years of a weekly podcast, and boy, it felt like a vacation.
1: It was crazy. It was
0: crazy how much time (laughs) one week gives me.
1: (laughs) I didn't know what to do with myself.
0: Yeah, it was pretty wild. But if you listen to our final episode, our Christmas episode, Tales from the Crypt, then you heard our announcement. If not, then here it is, is that we have changed things up for the new year and we are going to a bi-monthly podcast. So our episodes will be coming out twice a month now instead of four times a month.
1: We might surprise you by throwing in an occasional extra, but yeah, that's the structure now because that's what we want to do. It's our podcast and we need to live life, dudes.
0: Yeah, and you'll see why with today's episode. We are interested in some things that we just needed more time to be able to prepare for and a week turnaround does not give us very much time at all. Mm -mm. We do have more episodes, though, of course, as we've mentioned on previous episodes, you can... Check out our Patreon, where we do a bunch of bonus content, and we still will cover movies and stuff there. That's at patreon.com slash lasergraves, but for our normal episodes going forward, we've just started to write down a pretty interesting list of topics we'd like to cover from the 80s that aren't just movie walkthroughs. These are fun things that we've been wanting to dive into.
1: More like research-based. Of course, we'll still cover movies, um, but I think it's more about the bigger scope As opposed to us just reacting.
0: Yeah, and just having fun with it. So we took that extra week to really prep and get ready. Did we? eh, Well, we're pretending we did.
1: Well, we did prep, but we also just laid around and twiddled (laughs) our thumbs a little bit.
0: I kind of just soaked in the first few days off of not podcasting. I was like, whoa.
1: You had like a podcasting meltdown, though, because I feel like you needed to, um, you, you kind of panicked about research. How? Maybe four days in.
0: Yeah, I definitely am used. Well, we've been doing this for two years straight, so it was weird to take a week off. It
1: it was. I agree.
0: But that week off was well spent because we planned out a bunch of episodes. Instead of just kind of figuring out the week of, Mm -hmm. we know what we're doing now for like the next six months. And we have some really fun stuff planned.
1: Coming in hot.
0: Coming in hot. One of the things that we thought would be fun is looking at doing a series Not regularly, but just every now and then when we feel like it.
1: Yeah, when we feel like it, calm down.
0: We wanted to do urban legends of the 1980s and just discuss those. We thought that would be pretty fun. Mm -hmm. So for our first episode of 2021, we are starting off with an urban legend episode. And today's episode is a fun one. The E.T. Atari Dump, which is quite an interesting story
1: real or just an urban legend It's said millions of cartridges of the atari video game et are buried in this old landfill in alamogordo unfortunately the word dump i just <laughs> keep oh, coming back to it highbrow podcasting A- atari dump atari dump everywhere i just have read the word dump so many times in the past couple of weeks i can't handle it yeah
0: it's true we watched several documentaries, a lot of YouTube clips, read a bunch of articles, we're, were jacked up on our info. But this is still not a really dense, long, boring episode. This is still like our normal episodes. They're, they're shorter, they're fun, brief overviews. So if you're like a hardcore gaming nerd uh like don't come at us with the corrections we are just trying to have fun with this because i did down. not want to dive into all the like nonsense of this but but we will cover all the good juicy stuff
1: it's it will make you that weirdo when you go to a party at some point in the future when quarantine is over and you get to go to a party and you can casually be like you know what Boom. And you can drop way too much information about the E.T. Atari
0: dump. Yeah. When somebody's like, hey, where did Steve go? Maybe like he's in the bathroom, probably taking a dump. And then you can go, <laughs> hey, speaking of dumps, <laughs> did you ever know about the E.T.? Check out Laser Graves. They did a great episode.
1: Or <laughs> you can just pretend it's your own information. That's it's right. fine. All
0: right. Well, let's get into this. This is a fun one. Mm-hmm. So the E.T. Atari dump, we can't start without... Going into the history of Atari, I know a, a lot of people are aware of Atari. I think some people grew up with it like I did. That was the, the one of the only consoles we ever had in our household. Really?
1: I was going to ask you because you and I are a little too young for it. Because it was coming out in the early 80s, so you were like a little baby boy.
0: Yeah, but my parents didn't have a lot of money, and so they bought my sisters, who are significantly older nine years older and seven years older than me.
1: Yeah. They
0: were prime audience for Atari.
1: Oh, okay. They yeah. had an
0: Atari, so by the time I was, you know, four or five, I was playing Atari with my sisters.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: i I think an NES. A little after that, you know, by like the mid to late nine 90- or eighties.
1: Yeah, NES came out in I think eighty five.
0: Yeah. And then I as a teenager, as a young teenager, had a Sega Genesis and that was it. I didn't
1: Oh, you were a Sega. Yeah,
0: definitely a Sega guy. Isn't
1: that weird how there was a split between oh. Sega and Nintendo? My
0: best friend at the time and I made a conscious decision that one would go Super Nintendo and the other <gasps> would go Sega so we could double dip and smart. have everything.
1: So smart. Yeah,
0: especially when it came to things like Mortal Kombat and stuff with like what? blood codes and stuff.
1: What did you like secretly? What did you like better?
0: I always liked Sega way better. I thought it Ugh. was cooler. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I grew up with an Atari, so there's a lot of nostalgia there, but a lot of people didn't grow up with Atari, so I figured a, mm-hmm. a background would be good. So you didn't have one. No, them. no, I You're didn't... like an NES kid.
1: Heck yeah. <laughs> Specifically, and I'm sorry, it's embarrassing and everybody will hate me, but Dr. Mario.
0: Which is still to this day when we... Fire up the NES, because we have all our game systems still. Mm-hmm. When we fire it up, you will go into this trance of Dr. Mario for like hours.
1: Yes, most from recently. From you to triangle
0: Dr. Mario trance.
1: Most recently, I thought I played Dr. Mario for 15 minutes and it was Hours that had passed. <laughs> Whoa. So I, I can't even play it anymore, but yes, an NES girl, so I didn't play Atari until I met you and we were full adults with children.
0: Yeah, I still have my Atari. I have a, uh, several, but I love Atari. So for those of you that don't know, here's a, a little brief refresher.
1: Attention, shoppers. <laughs> The new Atari cartridge game is
0: in. Excuse me. <laughs> Uh-oh, George again. Ooh, Atari's air battle. It comes with 27 games, but that's just for starters. You can get nine cartridges, 187 games. Ooh, blackjack. <laughs> oh.
1: I'd like an Atari.
0: Sorry, only our demonstrators left. Mine! No, George. Mine. The new video computer system by Atari. More games, more fun. So Atari really starts with this guy, Nolan Bushnell, who is quite the character. Uh, He's got a healthy ego.
1: (laughs) I think all of the people involved with this have very healthy egos. Hardcore.
0: (laughs) One of them was like saying how somebody was describing them as a prima donna. And they were like, yeah, they were all prima donnas. Hardcore. Nolan has a very healthy ego. Here is this one time in one of the documentaries. He says, you know, people often call me a visionary. I just laughed out loud. I'm like, you know what kind of person brings that up?
1: We should start doing that. Yeah. We should be like, well, you know, people say I'm a visionary and then like pay our bill at the restaurant or whatever.
0: (laughs) Although that being said, Nolan Bushnell was very much a, a forward thinking, big thinker. So he does deserve a lot of the credit, but although he wants you to know it. So it starts with him. He was this engineering guy. He had graduated from the University of Utah And then moved out to Silicon Valley. So they're really Atari, too, is one of the stories is they're really one of the first major startups in Silicon Valley before Mm -hmm. the big boom. But he was introduced early on to a design by this guy, Steve Russell, of a game called Space War. And it was just this really early attempt in the late 60s, you know, early 70s at some sort of gaming you know, there were two knobs that you could turn. It was like a little spaceship. This could...
1: was an at-home game?
0: No, it was like a computer that they had built um, inside of uh, like MIT kind of thing.
1: It's like a computer that takes up a whole room.
0: <laughs> yeah. And well, the it, screen is Yeah, it was like inches. a little screen. But it was more for <laughs> people like engineers would appreciate it. They would know how to do it. But it wasn't something for the the working class.
1: Okay, it wasn't like for the masses. (laughs)
0: No, but it made a huge impression on Nolan Bushnell. And so by the early 70s, he was trying to figure out how to do the same thing but make it marketable Mm. for just video gaming, like Mm coin-operated video games and stuff like that.
1: Do you have any idea when coin-operated games were made? It's kind of out of the scope of our area of coverage. I'm just offhand I would asking. think
0: late 50s, early 60s. Really? I don't know the one. We have a pinball machine right behind us, and that's from the 60s. So oh,
1: so, yeah. So it kind of earlier. transition from pinball to like the screen games to... Yeah,
0: because coin-op games have been around for a long, yeah, long yeah. time. But <laughs> I mean, as far as the like modern gaming, by late 70s, That's when they were the kind of golden age of arcades. Mm -hmm. But with this idea of space war in mind by the early 70s, Nolan had created this game called Computer Space that was basically an adaptation of that, Mm -hmm. slightly different. And it was a coin-operated game too, but it proved to be really complicated. And again, it was like engineers really could do it, but the average person just, it was a little over their head.
1: Like complicated to play?
0: Yeah, it was just a little too complex. But it it gave him the first indication that there really was a market for these kinds of games and mm-hmm. that maybe he should pursue that further. Mm. But we're going to flash forward to 1972 because that's when Nolan Bushnell and this other engineer named Ted Dabney founded Atari. So this is the foundation of mm-hmm. it all. They also hired this guy, Al Alcom, to be their first like in-house designer and engineer.
1: And you said this is 72. This
0: 1972 okay. Atari was created What's interesting, though, is it was created to be more of a like, a consulting uh, company and building prototypes and then basically selling oh, okay. those prototypes. They were not manufacturing their own games and stuff like oh,
1: that. Oh, yeah, that's a whole different Absolutely, bag that of worms? was
0: not the plan at all. However, one of the prototypes that they had developed was a game called Pong. And the story of Pong is kind of almost its own... Interesting complex history.
1: So, you're going to tell us the story of Pong. Can we start it with once a Pong a time? Yeah, okay,
0: once a Pong a time. <laughs> okay, Pong is complicated though because there's a guy named Ralph Bears who was also this engineer, developer, gaming designer, very famous in his own right, who had created. The Basically, Pong. It was just like it, except it was missing elements like a scorecard and music and stuff like that. Okay. But the same basic two paddles and a ball developed it and then sold it to Magnavox, which was putting out the Odyssey. The Odyssey, which we have sitting there, was the first home console ever created. And Bushnell saw this and was like, oh, that's a really cool idea. Um, I'm going to just improve upon it and make mm-hmm. it better. As the years went on, I think he tried to distance himself from that and say, oh, no, no. I mean, this paddle games idea. were everywhere. This is... I was, was just... I was making my own version of it. Mm. Although, there's a very complicated, and you can imagine why, backstory between the two of them, Ralph and Nolan. Because... Ralph saw it as you just flat out stole my idea.
1: Uh, Or is it Picasso who said, steal like an artist.
0: That's right. (laughs) Just
1: go in and do it better than the person whose idea you have stolen.
0: And he really did. Because what they did was they created this Pong prototype coin-op machine. And they plunked it down in this bar, this tavern, just to see what would happen. And it (laughs) took, seriously, it was like a prototype just to, to gauge if people would play it. And they said they would sit in the tavern and, like, watch people go up to it. Oh, my it.
1: gosh. I, before you continue, as you said they said it in a bar, I thought of a bunch of engineers, like, full nerds, sitting in the corner of a bar, like, with a bucket of beer, <laughs> watching, like, drunk people and being like, I think this guy is going to go for it. Yeah.
0: Well, it turned out that a lot of people went for it. <laughs> <laughs> they loved it. And it really took off. What happened was it was more popular than they had imagined. And they decided maybe instead of trying to sell this prototype to another company, they should go into manufacturing themselves Mm. and produce these Pong systems, uh, these coin-op machines to put into kind of an arcade idea. Mm -hmm. And by 73, they had already sold a million dollars worth of equipment to places. By 74, Mm -hmm. just two years later, four million dollars worth. And there had already been 20 other knockoff machines that were starting to pop up that were oh, yeah. that Pong idea. So they were aware that they were like really, really onto to something. And that really set the tone for them. Realizing that they had the ability to do something that none of the knockoffs could do. They had designers that could create games from scratch and not just replicate oh. what they were putting out. So they were leading the charge and really creating this idea And so they hired some more designers and they went to work on starting to design their own games for Atari. Mm -hmm. This was all coin-op still. This wasn't home machines. Yeah. They formed these teams, which were a programmer, a technician, and an engineer. And they set up shop. And you know, with all your research, one thing about Atari, which is a very fun part of the history, is yes, these were all engineering nerds, but they loved to party. And they partied hard. And they came from an era that wanted to not be wearing suits and ties and stuff like they had to in grad schools. Yeah,
1: they grew up in the 60s. Yeah, they
0: just wanted to have this fun laid back environment. So they were sitting around smoking pot, drinking beer, in their jeans and t shirt, growing their hair and beards out and designing these crazy games. It was really, you know, nowadays, we think of that Google idea of like laid back environments. But this was really this was setting the tone for Holding people accountable for really creative thinking, Mm -hmm. but giving them an environment to just be themselves.
1: Nerds who party.
0: Yeah, and nerds love to party. (laughs) Speaking of nerds, you know who they brought on early on? He wasn't an official member, but they kind of contracted him, a young Steve Jobs.
1: Of course. He
0: came in and worked on the game Breakout, which was a huge hit.
1: Did they think he was the man for the jobs? (laughs) Yeah, thanks.
0: (laughs) But Pong and all these other games, they were like doing really good. And Bushnell did what he did the first time and looked to the Odyssey and said, what about bringing them into the home? Mm -hmm. And like how he saw the first Pong variation, which he thought was really boring and he could approve upon, he saw the Odyssey as being the same, which I can agree. The Odyssey, for as innovative as it was, it was a pretty boring system. Yeah. So he said, let's get into this market of home gaming, the difference being that Atari was going to be the standard, the gold standard of of home consoles. So with the idea of doing this, 1975, they create Pong, which we have a couple different versions. We have the Sears and the Atari version. Actually, the Atari one belonged to my dad, who he had it in the 70s. So you've
1: played Pong, right?
0: For sure, yeah. And the Pong Atari system was not what you think of as with the 2600. It wasn't like cartridges. It was its own system that had little paddles, you know, little knobs.
1: So that was the only game you could play. it was just
0: one game. But you could plug it in and play it at home, which was revolutionary. I mean, yes, the Odyssey was doing it. But this just looked and felt so cool.
1: I wonder, was it the marketing, do you think? Because it feels like... The Odyssey fell short as far as distribution, but it seems like Atari became almost a household name within a handful of years.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get to why Atari did. But early on, no, Atari wasn't a household name. And it was because of the lack of marketing and stuff like that. Oh, okay. But Pong, keep in mind, also now had beeps and bloops and music and all this kind of stuff. So it was crazy because it was... yeah. It was just something that people had not seen and it didn't catch on crazy fast because people were really like, did not even know what to make of it. This was all very cutting edge.
1: Yeah. It's like you need a commercial to say, this is how it's done. Yep. And this is what your face will look like smiling as you do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but it, it didn't take long to take off. Okay. And then all of a sudden they were like, okay, if we can do this, how can we now do this and not just have one game? How can yeah. we make it interchangeable?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... We'll skip a lot of the nerdy detail. It's very fascinating, but we just don't have time for it. No. And we'll jump to 1977, which is when the Atari 2600 that we all know, except back then it was known as the VCS or the video computer system. That's what it was known for years as.
1: Oh, weird. Yeah. What does 2600 mean?
0: Oh, I don't know. I think it was just the just a random
1: number they threw at it
0: i don't know maybe it has something to do with the microprocessing chips or something i could be wrong i didn't even think to look into that honestly i've just always called it the 2600
1: let's just go with (laughs) it we have
0: like five nerds right now being like damn you laser graves
1: it used 2600 (laughs) microchips
0: (laughs) anyway they showed it at like a trade show and everybody was like what are we seeing right now?
1: Yeah, and you have to, again, put away your 20, 21st century eyes because we're used to like super intense games that look almost like real life. And when you look back at these games, they're truly just bleeps and bloops and l- bars of
0: color. Yeah, they're 8 oh. bit graphics. They're really pixelated, squared top, you know, squared figures, but they look awesome considering the technology. Mm-hmm. What I will say, too, is if you are interested, watch these documentaries. They're all over the place. Hearing the engineers talk about developing the technology is mind blowing Mm -hmm. that this stuff didn't exist. And then all of a sudden it did. Yep. And it is pretty incredible that they were able to do this in the first place.
1: It's like building the Great Pyramids. You got to build a wide base till (laughs) you reach your singular focus.
0: Well, and with an arcade system, the amount of space you have to work with memory and everything is so huge. Versus trying to bring it to a home system, you're incredibly limited. So that the fact that they could pull off what they could with that technology is pretty incredible. And
1: to make it affordable to the average person.
0: Absolutely. That was a big deal, too, was keeping it under cost mm-hmm. because it was, you know, it could have gone through the roof.
1: Right. And the decade before, truly, I was joking earlier, but computers took up rooms. Yeah. So you have to really go, wow, they've made some computer technology available within a decade to a person at their home. And it is small and portable. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. And I think it, it was very apparent from everybody that the Atari was something. This VCS was really cutting-edge, revolutionary, and I think everybody knew that it was going to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody could have predicted where it was going to go as Mm -hmm. far as, you know, dominating. Sure. But they knew it was big, and Nolan Bushnell knew that he, if he wanted to really bring this to the full potential... They could not do this on their own. They needed real capital and real startup.
1: Yeah, I would say he's probably a visionary.
0: Yeah, well, a lot lot of people have called him a visionary. (laughs) (laughs) But he ended up getting hooked up with Warner, you know, Warner Mm -hmm. Brothers, Time Warner, all those guys. Warner
1: Communications. Yeah, it
0: was Warner Communications at the time. Specifically a guy who was the vice president, Manny Girard. And he was pitched this idea and said, yeah, I want to be a part of this. This sounds incredible. Let's get in on it. And they went all in. And then after seeing the potential of the Atari, they offered to just buy Atari. And known this is something that's haunted him forever was he thought, why not? Uh, let's just hand it over. So he actually sold Atari to Warner. Mm-hmm. This is very murky, and I really, because I had to cover so much stuff, I didn't have time to check this out. But I think he retained, like, 50% of the company and still had say over it, even though he had sold the company to Warner. Sure. They were just in charge of manufacturing it and stuff like that, but he was kind of still the figurehead. Mm -hmm. So he had it, but they took it over, and now it was up and running. And 1977, the Atari comes out. Not... Crazy at first, but then quickly kind of takes over. What happened was it became very apparent very quickly after this partnership was struck that Bushnell and the engineers on the West Coast for Atari versus the the Warner executives of the East Coast were mm-hmm. two totally different worlds. There were suit and ties, all business, all numbers versus all the like pot smoking engineers that just Children wanted to get of drunk. Hippies, yeah. yeah, and hang out. So when they got put together, it was it was quite a culture clash.
1: Oil and water, yeah.
0: And Warner, being the money behind it, said, you know what? Um, I think we need to bring in somebody else as a CEO who knows how to run a real company. Because you're, Bushnell's a great visionary guy. You know, a lot of people have called him that. But <laughs> he probably doesn't know how to really run a business properly. There was a lot lacking. So they brought in a CEO... This guy, Ray Kassar, who became, you know, synonymous with Atari and the legacy of Atari.
1: Right. We'll get to him in a bit. We'll
0: get to him. But he was put in and actually right away it did start to show results because by 78, Atari was taking off. It was the marketing was out there. They were really showing people what it was about, how to get it into households. Things were going so well that they started leaving Nolan out of a lot of the conversations and things finally came to a head as you can imagine with somebody with an ego like Nolan who this was his baby even though he sold it off for $28 $28 million in 77.
1: That's nine quad billion <laughs> in today's dollars.
0: But they were basically cutting him out because he was difficult. And so he started to think, well, I'm just going to make myself even more difficult.
1: Visionaries are often difficult. And
0: uh, they, he threatened him finally. And they he said, then buy me out, buy out my, my part of it. And they said, okay. And they bought him out. And that was really the end of it for him. Mm-hmm. And he was out of the picture. And Atari was up and running with new leadership and and everything else and this is by 1978 mm-hmm. by 79 space invaders comes out and the rest is history Atari. Me Atari.
1: sorry miss Jenning you going to slam dunk me, Atari? The Atari video computer system is 20 cartridges with 1,300 game variations you play on your own TV set.
0: Don't watch television tonight. Play it. Even though we're not getting, getting into the whole, like, 79 to 82, you know, when you have all these great games coming out, we'll touch on a couple, but... That's not really the point of this whole No, we got to get to E.T. But that's that's Atari. I mean, Atari really is interesting. It's about these engineers coming up with this great novel concept, getting real money behind it, and then real money taking it over, pushing out all the mm-hmm. people who started it. That's and how it is,
1: though. When money comes in, the like big money people, they take it over and squeeze it out until it is dead.
0: Yes. By 82, it's the biggest company in America, the fastest growing company. They're making easily over a billion dollars a year. Mm -hmm. They are a household name at this point. Atari is everywhere and it's changing the world as we know it as far as bringing technology into the home. And with everything, it can only go so far up before they hit hit a real wall. Mm Mm-hmm. They hit a couple already that we'll talk about later, but the big, big one that we're talking about today is the game E.T.
1: Oh, yeah. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial.
0: One of the suits in all of this was the CEO of Warner. His name was Steve Ross. Mm-hmm. And he's the type of guy...
1: Who has two first names.
0: That's right. You already don't trust him. <laughs> he's the type of guy <laughs> just who... pick
1: one. ...is
0: a mover and shaker and has really big power meetings with everybody. And he just happened to be at a meeting. I would say it's probably more of a dinner with Steven Spielberg at the time. Casually. E.T.'s going to be coming out. They know it's going to be a massive hit. One thing we didn't discuss in the Atari legacy is once other people started getting into the process of designing games and other companies started popping up, it was less about Atari creating games from within and more about them finding coin-op games in the arcades that were huge and licensing them and adapting them to the 2600. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to get a game that you could have control over and not have to license and compete with everybody else was huge. And Steve Ross saw an opportunity with Steven Spielberg to get ahead of the game of all the competition and do the E.T. game. The problem was E.T. was coming out in the summer. It was coming out in June. And they wanted it to be released by Christmas.
1: So they wanted to let the movie do its thing and then coast into the sales season for the holidays.
0: Ready to go, which makes sense. Except it is absolute insanity. When you think about the amount of time it takes to design a real game, Mm -hmm. this was unheard of. And everybody tried to get out of it. And of course, when the CEO is saying, no, we're doing this, I told Steven Spielberg we would. Uh, He's not going to take no for an answer. So as the story goes... Basically, they're asking around at Atari to all their hotshot designers, who's going to do this? And everybody wouldn't touch it because they yeah. knew that that was career suicide. Yeah, they had
1: a like less than two month
0: turnover, right? Um. Yeah, definitely okay. less than that. So they were given five weeks to design this game.
1: Ugh.
0: I'll get to why that's so crazy. <laughs> and one person finally stepped up. And that was a very confident, very well-established already in his short career, Howard Scott Warshaw, who is quite a character.
1: Probably a visionary also. he
0: Definitely, he's a visionary. He's actually a really interesting guy. I've heard so many interviews with him. And yeah, me too. He's got his own story that we'll touch on a little bit that that sucks in some ways. But he had a very healthy ego at this time, too, because he came to work for Atari His very first game was Yar's Revenge, which is considered by most to be one of the greatest Atari games ever made. So he immediately was selling, you know, a million cartridges of his first game. And then he went on to do Raiders of the Lost Ark for a second game, which was also a really amazing game. Mm -hmm. The thing, though, is that he said Raiders of the Lost Ark alone took him 11 months to do. They're wanting E.T. in five weeks. Which, Whoa. this is why everybody was avoiding it. Mm-hmm. But of course he said, yeah, I can do that.
1: And that's the the ultimate pitfall for artists. We've said it on here before, say yes and figure it out. But sometimes say yes and figure it out doesn't work.
0: Yeah, well, his caveat was, I can do it uh, if you give me a big enough bonus. And they cut him. No numbers were disclosed, but I can tell you it was probably pretty massive. ...to agree to do this in five weeks. Okay. He assured them he could, got on a jet, flew down, met with Spielberg, went over some ideas. Spielberg said, just make it like a Pac-Man game, nice and easy. And of course, Howard being top of his game was like, no way in hell. I don't tell you how to direct movies, so I'm going to do something amazing. We're not doing a Pac-Man game had this insane concept for pushing gaming forward. I
1: love that, though. That he I'm was like, joking. you know what? I'm going to do something good with this.
0: Maybe save those ideas, though, for when you have 11 months, not mm-hmm. five weeks. Yeah. Needless to say, they signed off on the idea. He followed through. I mean, he did really. The... Here's one of the, the parts of this story is keep this in mind. For people who hate on E.T., he's still delivered, freaking game in five weeks which was unheard of mm-hmm. that was <laughs> uh, playable to a degree he showed spielberg spielberg signed off on it too It said i love the game cool i mean there's actual we've seen clips of him saying that you know he didn't play it
1: i was gonna say did he play it is there video of course footage Do
0: you think he <laughs> has time to sit around
1: but yes he does who would win <laughs> in a fist fight him or tom cruise uh
0: i think Oh, Tom Cruise would. No, he would, because he would have somebody come in and punch Tom Cruise for him.
1: But Tom Cruise could have somebody come in and punch. What if they just stared at each other? Who would explode first?
0: Oh, Spielberg, for sure. Tom Cruise is intense. (laughs) Okay, anyway. (laughs) All right, well, needless to say, it was signed off on. It came out, hit the market, and...
1: It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T., running away from secret agents,
0: falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on Earth. A friend, E.T., only from Atari. This game, like, sucks. <laughs> it's it problematic. Sucks bad. If you've played it, you know. We don't need to get into the, the gameplay details, but you fall in holes. It's just, it's really convoluted. It's very complicated. It did not work well. Okay, have you played E.T.? Did I make no, you play
1: it? No, I did read, though, and not read. I think it was a YouTube video. I'm not even sure at this point. But somebody was saying that the real key was you had to read the box material, like the information in within the packaging, and then the game would make more sense and make it more playable, but most kids didn't. Yeah, and, they
0: wanted just a point and click kind of thing. yeah. Game. yeah. Well, it was complicated. I have it. We've played it. I've played it. I haven't. I will say as a kid who grew up on Atari, um, yes, E.T. sucks as a game, but it is definitely not the worst game in the history of gaming, Mm -mm. nor is it even the worst game in Atari. It's just not a great game. That's all it comes down to. It's just that it got, it became a scapegoat, which we're going to go into. But needless to say, it came out. People didn't like it. The one thing is people were returning it. That was new. So usually, even if you didn't like a game, you still kept it. Yeah, but people were like, no, I'm, this sucks. Too I'm returning much. it.
1: Yeah, So actually, let's go back a little bit. Warner Communications purchased Atari in nineteen seventy six uh-huh. and they grew to be valued at over two billion dollars. When Jeez. they purchased them, it was twenty eight million. The difference between a million and a billion is extremely significant. Just take a peek at that if you need to understand that number. It's huge growth. So that's like $9 by modern standards.
0: That's crazy. Did you get the numbers on the staffing too? Because I heard that when they took them over, they had like 150 on staff. And by the time they were in their heyday, it was like... 12 or 20,000 employees? Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah.
1: It's bonkers, though. So by this time, by 1982, Atari was responsible, actually, for over half of Warner Communications' revenue.
0: That's crazy, considering that they had movies, final, you know, music, everything. I mean, they were one of the biggest names in America.
1: It is astronomical numbers. So... To go from, you know, 10 years earlier, nobody having a game system to it being responsible for half of Warner Brothers or Warner Communications Inc.'s numbers is, like, inexplicable. It is bananas. It's off the rails. They Everybody was just super duper jazzed. The company was actually creating 8 out of 10 video games and gaming products on the market. So they were riding high. But of course... This is a bubble that's going to burst. You can't just have exponential growth forever. Right. Uh, In December of 1982, progress slowed, as it naturally would, as profits were only increasing at 15%, as opposed to, I don't know what it is before that, like (laughs) a quad billion, (laughs) uh, which was well below the numbers that they had projected, Based upon, obviously, previous growth, because the year before they had, you know, exploded. And the year before that, same thing. When the news was released that the price per share was falling, mm-hmm. it had fallen by, I think, 33%. The quarter ended after that. I know, we're talking about profits. Yeah, it's I'm hard. it's really cool. It's real simple. They The profits fell by more than half. So it was a lot. Of course it was going to happen. I think they had maybe hoped it would be more gradual and not yet, but that's what happened. This was all complicated by Ray Kassar, who you mentioned earlier. He's Atari's CEO. He'd actually been in textiles before this, which is a strange leap to go from textiles to... Atari, (laughs) but
0: you do you, Ray. I think the uh, engineers at Atari were very aware that he had zero experience or knowledge or ability to comprehend uh, software design.
1: Incidentally, he was accused of insider trading.
0: Oh, really? Well, that's not a shock.
1: Yeah. 23 minutes before the news hit of this, like, profit drop, Mm -hmm. he sold off 5000 shares of atari (laughs) 23 minutes before the news hit think about that yeah he was also problematic in that he was trying to restructure atari because Uh he was trying to make it more orderly like a business
0: oh for sure Mm -hmm. yeah
1: i mean that was his management style and that rubbed a lot of the more creative free-spirited types the wrong way uh, as a free-spirited type myself, I can tell you that anybody who tries to micromanage me makes me want to die. <laughs> I don't want any part of that. I don't understand it. it. Understand it? I think that they don't believe in me. It ruins my vision. I, I feel like as a creative, I relate to this really hard because you don't have faith in your management if they don't have faith in your ability. Right. So it's extremely troubling. In general, all of the creatives were very upset about the changes he was making to their working life and the more constructive working atmosphere that he tried to Oh, could
0: you imagine? Yeah, That'd suck. <laughs> to be like I had uh, on one of the documentaries they had talked about how like you know, he walked into a meeting and somebody's just passing around a joint and most of them were drinking beer while they were just hanging out and this was just not corporate America. No,
1: not at all. So in addition to this, there was a lot of trouble with a lack of royalties and recognition being given to designers. So the designers wanted, like, their names on the games. This was problematic, and the reason Ray didn't want this was because he didn't want other companies stealing designers and undercutting Mm -hmm. him. But the designers were like, hey, I did this amazing thing, give me some cash. Actually, David Crane was making... $20,000 $20,000 a year. Jeez. So this is game designer David Crane. That equals $53,000 in modern times.
0: That was his salary, or that's how much he was making for the company?
1: No. He was making his... He... By his standards, he had made... Or by his, like, computing, I don't know. He had made... Uh, his last game made $20 million. <laughs> and he made 20000 So he had.
0: Oh wow, that's interesting. He
1: had a leg to to stand on, and also the upper management was suffering severe turnover rates. Uh, And at one point, all of these programmers they wanted commissions. They were just trying to. Like, give Kassar a reason to let them stay. And he said, you are no more important to that game than the guy on the assembly line who puts it together. So it really showed all (laughs) these designers who were...
0: Making millions for the company?
1: Yeah, it just showed them how he felt about them. And, like, cool that the guy on the assembly line is putting forth work, too. He should be paid well for his work, but, you know... He didn't design the game. There's a lot more that goes into it. So they weren't getting equal compensation.
0: It's funny, too, because he said, you know, they're all acting like a bunch of prima donnas because they were. And -hmm. I thought that was just really funny. Like, you could tell that there was just a total disconnect between the engineering crew who knew what it took to make these games Mm -hmm. and then just the management that was like, whatever, just make us money.
1: Yeah, he had no idea what went into it. And actually, as a result, four designers quit in response, and they formed Activision.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. I knew one of them formed Activision. I didn't realize all four did.
1: They, uh, It says that the four designers in my research did. I don't know. I think one guy is still the head of it, but it's like Call of Duty. Activision is no joke today.
0: Dude, they were no joke right out of the gate. Yeah. Do you know what they did like right when they formed? What? Pitfall. Oh, yeah. Which basically is the game that started platform gaming. Mm -hmm. Like we wouldn't have anything like Mario or anything like that without Pitfall. Another person who quit during that same time started iMagic, which was also selling games back to Atari. Like they were just creating Uh, these third party companies now. And they lost all their amazing designers that were then having to (laughs) like they were Atari was then having to buy the games and license them back. Because they couldn't afford them. Meanwhile, those designers were like driving around in these fancy sports cars and throwing parties and just living the life because Atari screwed up. Like they had the chance. And that's, I saw interviews with these guys too about the split, and they just said that. They were like, look, you know, we gave them the opportunity. They said no. And Mm -hmm. so we formed our own companies and. The rest is history.
1: You know, and another issue that Atari was having, you talk about selling back uh, games that played for Atari. Another issue was that anybody could make Atari games. Yeah. So it was really difficult for people who were at home uh, just looking to play Atari games. Because, like, brands like Kool-Aid were making Atari games. <laughs> So it was hard to control the quality of the game that was coming in. Yeah. There was a lot of issue going on. Anyway, Ray Kassar was cleared of insider trading, but... What?
0: How is that even
1: possible? <laughs> Let's not go down that rabbit hole, because that's like a full
0: episode it so in itself. Stupid.
1: But he was forced to resign in July. In all, Atari lost over $5 million in 1983 and was dropped by Warner Communications in 1984. So remember, two years earlier, they were responsible for half of Warner Communications, um, you know, net worth or whatever. And now they're being dropped in a matter of two years. That's bonkers.
0: Yeah, I, all great relationships have to come to an end. And when money's on the line, well, that's kind of going to be the definitive, yeah. you know, decision on. When to call it a day. Interesting, though, before 84, that you said that's when they, they mm-hmm. officially called it an end. By December 7th of 82 was when the big meeting was held and they had figured out that the stocks were plummeting and everything yeah. was going downhill. It was so out of control at that point that there was no there was no turning back. No. Like they were just screwed. And they had decided, look, what are we going to do with all this crap? E.T.'s coming back in large numbers. Plus... Keep in mind that with E.T. as well as a game we'll talk about in a second, Pac-Man, there were these games that just weren't selling like they should have, and they had all this backstock. And so it was like, look, it's a losing game. We've got all this crap laying around. Let's just start calling it a loss. We'll start cutting people out, you know, laying people off, and we'll start getting rid of our
1: inventory. Yeah, what are you going to
0: do? So this is where we get to the real fun of this episode, Mm -hmm. which is with all that backstock, as the story goes, remember Urban Legends, September 27th, 1983, at an Atari warehouse in El Paso, Texas, Mm -hmm. 10 to 12 semi trucks loaded up tons of Atari games and various equipment. But as the lure goes, really just E.T. Because remember, that was the worst game in history. And right. that was the reason why Atari was failing. So they loaded up. Uh, what did they say the The uh, speculation was? Like millions of copies yeah. of E.T. Mm-hmm. into these semi trucks. And apparently shipped them over an hour north to a small town in New Mexico called Alamogordo. Mm Mm-hmm. Why why Alamogordo?
1: I don't know, but Alamogordo means fat cottonwood.
0: Very good. (laughs) Actually, Alamogordo had a dump that was pretty well maintained. They did nightly burying, so it was like the stuff didn't just sit around. It got buried nightly, but Mm -hmm. it also had a no scavenging rule, so you couldn't just go in and pick and choose what you wanted, like some other city dumps, apparently.
1: That's weird, Not in
0: the 80s. I could have seen people doing that a lot.
1: And actually, honestly, it happened after this. But
0: whatever. So Atari struck a deal with the city of Alamogordo. I use the term city lightly, especially Mm -hmm. in 1983. Yeah. To remove all of this backstock that they had in El Paso and go bury it in a dump and just call it a day because the Mm -hmm. stuff wasn't selling anyway. It had all been returned. It was useless garbage. So they go there. They drop off all the Atari stuff on the 27th of September. hmm By the 28th, stories go. And this is kind of validated that kids got wind and were looting. I heard that one of the kids that arrived at the dump for, which we'll get into, the, the excavation. Mm-hmm was one of the kids who had been there on the 28th and had stolen some of the cartridges. And he mm. said, funny enough, ironically, the cartridges that none of them kept were E.T. because they thought the game sucked. So they <laughs> left them at the dump. But they made out with all these other cartridges, apparently. That was the 28th. And then by the 29th, the city poured a layer of concrete over the mm-hmm. top of it. And that was it. According to urban legend, that all of these games had been buried... Now, the Alamogordo Daily News did report on it. Actually, a few different places reported on it that Atari Mm -hmm. had gotten rid of the contents. Where the story begins is not really did they kind of get rid of some junk, but more what did they get rid of and how much of it did they get rid of. And this is where the ball gets rolling for the urban legend. The E.T.
1: game described as one of the worst video games ever made was so bad that Atari gave up trying to sell them and, according to the story, shipped a million or more copies to the Elmgordo dump. Yeah, actually, I think that the real, you know, crux of this urban lore is from a 1983 article ran by the New York Times. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they ran a short, it's super short, I read it. It's a super short article about Atari dumping 14 truckloads of game cartridges and materials in... Alamogordo, which as we've already learned, remember, means fat cottonwood.
0: Oh, you know what else? What? I got some other information. What? This week's fun fact. What, what? This week's fun fact for everybody is. You and I met, fell in love in. Alamogordo, New Mexico. (laughs) That's all we're giving you for this fun fact.
1: Also, we graduated.
0: (laughs) We'll leave it at (laughs) that. So we're personally invested in this story.
1: We know Alamogordo very well.
0: So well. I grew up in Alamogordo. Man, talk about... This just cracks me up. So you lived in Alamogordo for years, too.
1: Mm -hmm. I moved there. Remember, I've mentioned a quad billion times that I lived in Montana uh in a very small town after leaving that my family moved to Alamogordo, New Mexico.
0: Did you know about the Atari dump?
1: No, didn't know about it until I was like 25.
0: Interesting. What about you? I definitely did. It was in the air like it was there's a lot of urban legends around Alamogordo. Mm-hmm. You know these dumb things that people mm-hmm. say whatever like ghost children will push you up a hill kind of legends.
1: That's every town.
0: One of them, though, was that there were millions of cartridges of E.T. buried somewhere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I grew
0: up in Alamogordo, that's all we knew. And I can tell you, um, for what it's worth, I totally thought it was just urban legend. I was oh, like, that's really? so stupid.
1: I thought you believed it. That's
0: interesting. I, I wanted to believe it, but I thought it was really dumb.
1: But also, like, why Alamogordo? That yeah. just seems too random.
0: <laughs> yeah, well that's it. I mean, of course. Yeah, they're gonna say it was in our town. Yeah. Why Al- our town of all towns?
1: Alamogordo's a small town that Um I don't think anything notable has happened there.
0: There's a military base and that's why there's a population.
1: Oh, there's White Sands. If you're ever in New Mexico, Ooh, yeah, definitely go see that. It's magical.
0: But at this time in eighty three, I think there was like you know, 20,000 plus people living there. Yeah, it was very small. small.
1: Mm -hmm. And the lore really does take place with urban legend. And you remember, you have to remember that the dump took place in a pre-internet era. So this was before everybody had access to like Reddit and every news, news article ever written. That just wasn't something people could, you know, Easily, like, bleep, blop, bloop, look it up, and there, there was yeah. the information at your fingertips. So people were not actually even able, able to freely discuss the game itself of E.T. Like, right from the start, let's take ourselves even before the internet. Uh, there just was no public forum for discussion uh, in the way that we know now. So it wasn't really clear what was happening in general with the game E.T., people had just stopped buying and were returning their cartridges but it wasn't like a well-known fact mm-hmm. I mean maybe to the to the company but you know Joe's Joe Schmo who bought ET and returned it wouldn't you know tell people across the country it just wasn't information that people could access
0: no I'd say for the most part, Uh, Atari was there one day and then it was gone the next.
1: Absolutely. And actually, (laughs) another thing to note here is the fast pace of the creation of E.T. meant that they actually skipped the testing phase of the game. Really? Yeah. So they had five weeks. They didn't get to like run it through because I think a testing phase would have probably caught a lot of the problems with the game and saved it maybe. So they didn't even have initial feedback from the average game player, which was a huge problem. The game just wasn't set up to succeed, even from the start. So the fact that it was being dumped wasn't well known, but also that that lack of information was at its core. We also need to briefly discuss the Pac-Man game.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Pac-Man. So to to just hold on for a second and go back to the E.T., Howard Warshaw pulled it off, like we said earlier. Like, he did manage to actually create this game. And a lot of the designers, after the fact, said, like, he did it. I mean, he should mm-hmm. be applauded for that because of what he accomplished in the time that he was given But it was pretty apparent from day one within kind of the industry that E.T. was getting the blame. And this is where we're getting to Pac-Man, because we had mentioned earlier that there were already kind of cracks in the system. Mm -hmm. I think Pac-Man was a huge one.
1: Absolutely. And actually, Warshaw didn't know for a while. Like, he just knew he sold a buttload right out. And he didn't know for a while until people started returning it, that his game had failed. Pac-Man was a slightly different story because they they made 12 million copies <laughs> of Pac-Man, uh, the game. They had not sold that many Atari systems, so they set themselves up for failure. They had hoped that the game would be so successful they could stimulate sales and game consoles. But the real issue, of course, was their bad business practices. And for some inexplicable reason, it all got pegged on E.T. Because people kind of noticed that E.T. was maybe not such a great game. And it came out right around the time that everything was crumbling. I wondered why this happened, and I went down the YouTube hole of conspiracy theories.
0: (laughs) Wow. Do you think part of it, too, in in real time would have been that, as I said earlier, games weren't being returned, and E.T. being returned seems like that would point to, oh... Mm -hmm. Well, no other games have been returned, so it must be this that's causing problems.
1: That's definitely part of it. But as far as like our contemporary take on it, it actually stems back to 1995 when New Media magazine claimed that ET had been the death of Atari by being the worst game ever made. So one magazine said
0: so stupid.
1: that this bad game or less than stellar game had killed an industry.
0: That's so dumb because I don't know if they understood the influence or the weight they had by just making these proclamations. This is the problem with sure. criticisms and and um, critics in general? They should know better, especially these people should know better to proclaim something to be the worst video game of all time when anybody who plays Atari, I don't know anybody who has actually played E.T. and played other Atari games, Mm -hmm. said, oh, yeah, E.T. is definitely the worst game. I've never met somebody that said that.
1: No, and also, I think they were just trying to sell magazines. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't think they really understood what they were doing. And remember, this is 95, so the Internet was just a little baby right then, but it's one of the early source materials that people clung to, and things started to happen from there. People began to remember the game, Because it was like a period of like 10, 15 years, and then people became kind of nostalgic for Atari in general. And they didn't have a copy. We have the beginning of eBay happening in the late, I don't know, 90s, 90s. early 2000s. People couldn't access the game as, as readily as they thought maybe they could. Although... To be fair, this is the time when everybody thought, you know, their Beanie Babies were going to be the <laughs> retirement fund. We were all just very naive. <laughs> Quick side note, I worked uh, at a job that, at a business that sold Beanie Babies, and every time a new one came out, it was in the mall, and old women would line up and, and rattle the like cage door <laughs> for the store to get the newest Beanie Baby because they thought there was going to be a rush. Uh, Anyway, I hope their grandchildren are enjoying their uh, inheritance now. (laughs) Anyway, people remembered playing the game. They wanted it, but it was difficult to get access to the game. And people began rooting around for information. And a quick search revealed that there was a dump in Alamogordo. I mean, Alamogordo came up in a New York Times article. That's it. That's all you need to start going, okay, what happened in Alamogordo? And people just sort of let it grow from there. It was never actually a secret dump that happened in Alamogordo. Yeah,
0: that's what I've come to the conclusion of, too, with this whole urban legend idea. And keep in mind, with our series of urban legends, it doesn't mean that we think they're an urban legend. It's just things that have been deemed urban legends. But, I mean, it takes two seconds to realize there are multiple news articles, Mm -hmm. photographic proof... And people on record going, of course we dumped Atari stuff in in the dump. So... I I don't think it was maybe the question of, did Atari dump something? It was that it got blown out of proportion of what they got rid of.
1: Absolutely. But also you have to realize, too, that the people that were consuming this information didn't necessarily go go to a firsthand source, like a primary source. They just go, oh, so Atari was trying to hide the failure of ET and they just clung to that and spread it. So they didn't have any actual information that they were building upon, just a weird, dumb idea. But there were records of the sales, or lack thereof, and returns for Atari. It just is (laughs) simple research. It doesn't take anything. Atari couldn't hide the fact that they were, like, offloading a product in the desert. They weren't even trying to. They were just getting rid of their merchandise because it was cheaper to bury it than to continue to store it in a warehouse in El Paso,
0: 90 miles away. And it also goes back to Pac-Man that we were talking about, too, is that it wasn't just E.T. that was a problem. Pac-Man was actually the first true failure of Atari because they had gotten the license for it, which was this colossal like mega house Mm -hmm. machine in the arcades and atari got the license could not produce any sort of game that could kind of compare to the arcade because our arcades were advancing in technology and atari was not so even though as you said what did you say they they made 12 million yeah i think they still sold like seven million cartridges the problem was that the backlash for critics was severe. They were like, yeah, we all bought the game and it sucks. It doesn't look anything like the arcade game. So they were also already getting this this questioning happening in pop culture, which came long before E.T., which is Atari was fun, but it's kind of reached its its, um, abilities Mm -hmm. with technology and we're moving past it at this point.
1: You know, it makes me think of that saying, like, aim high, and even if you miss, you'll still land among the stars. That's (laughs) not really true. Sometimes you land in a dump in Alamogordo. That's true. (laughs) Okay. So the urban legend machine doesn't really operate in the facts and figures that I've laid out for you here. People just kind of created this narrative that... And it grew. Millions of ET games had been hidden away and covered by concrete in the desert of New Mexico. Like, that's an interesting story. So that's what people clung to. The truth is, of course, much less interesting. It was just simply less expensive to dump the excess. And the fact was superseded by the intense interest in a buried treasure because that's what it comes down to is people thought this was a buried treasure, like a nostalgic treasure from their childhood.
0: You know, it's funny when you're like, you do a search on the Internet and you see all the articles already there being like, yeah, this is this is true. It's not an urban legend. But we live in a time, even as advanced as we are with technology where conspiracy theories are so strong still. They're fun. That I'm like, how can people believe this when it takes two seconds to prove it wrong? So it's no surprise to me that even though articles existed saying, yeah, we buried all these games, that people were like, I don't believe they buried these games because people just make up their own minds. I also agree the treasure hunt idea of all these collectors and these historians and these nerds that are like, I know they exist. They've got to be out there somewhere. They're in Alamogordo. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I don't know if you came across this at all. What were, if any, um, attempts to discover if this was true or not over the years?
1: Um, You know, I read a few different attempts, but basically nobody got the licensing.
0: You know, oh, yeah, you
1: right. have to get permission. Like some dorks would go out and like... Just randomly dig, (laughs) but
0: also keep in mind the Alamogordo dump is huge,
1: and actually, the where the dump is now is different than where the dump was in nineteen (laughs) eighty three.
0: And also, when they finally decided that they were going to look for it, wasn't it like within a ten acre radius or something? So you, with a shovel, as a nerd looking for an ET game, good luck.
1: Yeah. And
0: Alamogordo, growing up there, I can tell you, they are not willing to play ball for the most part. And no. there were all these other rumors and urban legends about what was buried in the dump that made them not want to allow people to go looking for the games.
1: Well, and you also have to understand that like New Mexico has a quite an interesting past with regard to like military testing and A-bombs. You don't just go dig around. Yeah. You don't do that.
0: No, it's, I mean, the dump is right next to the White Sands Missile Range. Like, it's yeah. testing for military facilities, as well as um, just all these fun, I wish we could go into this too, but we can't, of speculations of what was buried in the dump. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what was the, the Mer- pigs?
1: Mercury-laden pigs. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's just... I love, I love urban legends.
1: Uh, I really want to investigate that, but I simply didn't have time. But we do, we do need to get to the excavation.
0: Yeah. Okay. So flash forward, there were all these theories put forward over the internet as, you know, as the internet grew, so did these theories and it started to become, it just became stronger and stronger of like, somebody has to finally prove it. Mm -hmm. I will say not, not a spoiler alert, but. After all this research, my thought was, uh, why? <laughs> like, yeah. I guess I don't really care. So you wanted to dig up garbage? Okay, cool. But
1: I guess. anyway,
0: it really like had to be proven that it existed. I don't think it needed to be proven that there was Atari games as much as it. this is where all the E.T. games went. Mm-hmm. Proving, without a doubt, that E.T. was the downfall of Atari. Which, so, yeah. If you found millions of E.T. games, that proves... That Atari failed because of E.T.
1: I guess.
0: Okay, so May 28th, 2013. We're Mm -hmm. in modern history now, guys.
1: Oh, just a few years ago.
0: Alamogordo finally granted a company, I think they're from Canada, called Fuel Industries six months to go excavate and create a documentary called Atari Game Over, which Mm -hmm. I'm hoping some people have seen. If not, go watch it. It's pretty goofy. Oh, yeah. For video gamers, it is a legendary landfill, a tomb, where an entire industry was nearly
1: buried. Thousands of copies of one of the epic flops in video gaming history were supposedly laid to rest in a New Mexico City's garbage dump. Now, someone wants to dig them up. News 13's Alex Goldsmith
0: has the story. The idea was they were going to create a documentary trying to discover if this was true or not, if this was in fact an urban legend. Mm -hmm. It is pretty fun. Uh, There was some hangups with environmentalists because of the mercury pigs or whatever. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, after some red tape, they, they got through it. And the dig actually started on April 26, 2014. One of the side stories... There were a lot of characters in this documentary. I think mainly just to kind of sell the documentary. You know, uh, what's his name? Uh, George R. Martin, who did Game of Thrones. was Whom in...
1: you've met? No big deal.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah, I have met him. I forgot about Oh, you know who else? I've talked to uh, Howard Warshaw. What? Yeah, we've emailed back and forth. What? Well, I wanted him to sign my copy of E.T. because I felt like he was wrongly kind of... You know, pitch like what? put in a position. This yeah, I had reached out to him. This was years ago. I reached out to him and I asked him if he would sign my Atari cartridge, and he said he didn't want to lose it in the mail. But if we ever met, he would be happy to sign it for me. Aww. And I just wrote him a note that said, "Look, dude, you were totally like it was. It was stupid that they blamed the downfall of Atari on you." And anyway, in the documentary, they have all these characters. In addition, who else is in there? Um What's his name? Klein?
1: Yeah, Ernst Ernest Klein, Klein. who did
0: Ready Player One. Fun book, by the way.
1: He's an interesting character in this film, if you watch it.
0: Yeah, we won't give away <laughs> how he gets to the dump site.
1: Let's, let's just say he has an interesting mode of transportation. Yeah,
0: he wants to go back in time. <laughs> and who else is there? Uh, well, the filmmaker himself is this big Hollywood writer. Even even Howard went out to the dig site. So th- it is funny to see everybody. It was everybody like
1: emotional that... for Howard.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I think it was like vindication that he mm. was like, hey, look, because there was reported, what, millions of cartridges that were yeah. buried and they were all et. One of the people present at the dig, and I don't think I caught this in the documentary, is the manager of Atari that oversaw the trucks that Dropped oh. everything off.
1: No, I didn't catch that either.
0: Yeah, he was there. And he was like, yeah, I you know, oversaw this. He said there were 728,000 cartridges, mm-hmm. not millions. That's still a lot, though.
1: But not all E.T., right?
0: Not at all. That's the thing. So when they all start digging, mm-hmm. they do start to find Atari stuff. And it's quickly revealed that, it's, no, it's not all E.T., it's just their backstock.
1: Just whatever was in that warehouse.
0: Pac-Man, Yars Revenge, whatever they had laying around, there was some E.T. They found uh, 1,178 cartridges total. There were a lot more, but they were way further down than they were expecting, and they yeah. just didn't want to even go there. But what was revealed was, yes, Urban Legend was true. There was an Atari dump. However... It was not millions of copies of E.T. No. It was just Atari's backstock.
1: I also would like to say that the hero of this no. little film...
0: <laughs> I totally agree. I already know where you're going.
1: Okay. Was the, the guy who pinpointed the location.
0: He's a, an amateur archaeologist. For sure. And in this documentary, watch him figure out a massive plot of land... Acres and acres and acres down to it's probably right here. And he was dead on.
1: I just looked it up. His name is Joe Lewandowski. He is uh, like a smarty pants who it, finds it.
0: It's all him, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Like, they They wouldn't have done it without him.
1: Absolutely. And it's so interesting to see how he does it. If you watch that little documentary, it is fascinating. I can't even... Fathom the level of focus it takes to triangulate the position of garbage thrown away, you know, 40 years ago or whatever it was.
0: Yeah. Also, even though it was pretty weird that they just wanted to dig up garbage, Uh it's also kind of cool to see Atari games coming out of the dump and being like, okay, so it was real. I have a personal attachment to this because my father, uh, when he was alive, knew Uh Every, he was Mr. Almagordo. He knew everybody mm-hmm. and knew that I grew up on Atari and did try. And he knew everybody that worked at the dump, too. Yeah. Tried to get me one of the games. Turns out that, boy, they um took the games they found very seriously as though they were dipped in gold. And he could not get me one of the games that were being pulled out. And I I, I mean, I love that my dad tried. But there's another whole story with, guess what? We found the games, and this is how it's going to play out.
1: Yeah, actually. So now that we've uncovered all this crap from the dump, what are we going to do with it? (laughs) Yeah. Oddly, some of it went to the Space Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) So Alamogordo on the like hill near the mountain has the Space Hall of Fame. Check it out, I guess. It's kind of interesting. It's... In a state of disrepair, I would say, the last time I visited it. It's a
0: pretty cool museum, though. It's just the history of space exploration. They've got, you know, as you know, with, with New Mexico, it's synonymous with... Space shuttle and rocket sleds and everything else. I mean...
1: Yeah, the first chimp who went into space, which, RIP, poor chimp. What kind of a monster sends a, a chimpanzee
0: into space? Yeah, he's buried there.
1: Yeah. Anyway, the city of Alamogordo, after they gave some of it to the Space Hall of Fame, decided to sell off this. I think they found something like 800 cartridges.
0: Of E.T.? Mm-hmm. I know that the filmmaker got 100.
1: Yep. Yeah. The city of Alamogordo, though, decided to sell a bunch through eBay and through the city's website. Oh,
0: wow. I bet that looked awesome. It had like spinning emojis of of mercury-filled pigs.
1: Well, weirdly, they raised over a hundred
0: grand. Really? Yes. Actually, I believe it.
1: Yeah, they were selling them for a buttload. I'm and kind the, of
0: bummed that I don't have one, honestly.
1: Well, don't worry. The city also reserved, I think it's like three hundred and something to sell off at a future date. Okay. So they're like, wait, wait, wait. If we sit on some of these, they'll appreciate in value and it's the true. city of Alamogordo can cash in for a new founders park in the future. <laughs> did you
0: did you come across that they also thought it would create like uh, tourism?
1: Yes, I was just about <laughs> to mention that. So we'll they do were that. they were hoping to build a or just create a <laughs> burial site tourist attraction point? First of all, I know where the stump is. It's behind the McDonald's.
0: It's not gonna. Dude, and how many. There's only so many nerds in the world willing to take a pilgrimage to Alamogordo, New Mexico to look at dirt.
1: It's truly just a flat space of land. There's like a. Uh, train tracks there's a McDonald's and there's nothing
0: they buried it back right after this was done yeah they filled the hole back up who would go look at a spot
1: where there was a hole where there was a dump site
0: and it's literally just dirt and the ground
1: you know what honestly though that's on brand for Alan Magordo <laughs>
0: We love you, Alma
1: <laughs> One of the ET cartridges that had been dug up was taken by the Smithsonian Institution for oh, its records, cool. and they actually have a serial number to authenticate it as a cartridge from that burial
0: site. Yeah, that's smart. Actually, I think that's really smart because as a VHS collector, there's a lot of people who do knockoffs or bootlegs. I could easily see people just putting an ET cartridge on eBay and saying, this came out of the dump site.
1: Yeah. And of course, it does sound ridiculous that this is at the Smithsonian, but they argue that it's absolutely a piece of, you know, the history of Atari and of cultural history in general. I totally agree. Absolutely. And so that kind of brings us up to where we are today. You can go to the Smithsonian and ask them for a gander or wait until Alamogordo releases one of its 300 for, I'm guessing, more than two grand at this point. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Wow, the dump site proved to be real, and people were excited about garbage. Everybody loves a dump. I really love this story so much, not only because we're just personally invested growing up there, Mm -hmm. but it's such a fun story. I think, you know, as a kid growing up, I wanted to be Indiana Jones, so the idea of speculating for years and years and years, and it just got more ridiculous over the years, to finally have some resolution. On the one hand, it's like bummer because I kind of like the idea of it never quite being known. Like always being a mystery. But on the other hand, it's really fun that there's this documentary and now it's in the Smithsonian and it's part of this story. As you said, it's it's part of gaming history.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I would say that as all of this has been dug up, Quite literally. Howard Warshaw has had a lo- lot of opportunity to find redemption. It, you know, because for a long time, he just kind of quietly fell to the shadows. And now he's like, yeah, see, I didn't do it. It was Kassar. It was bad management. It, it wasn't was so my game.
0: Things. I mean, it, it definitely didn't help being all these refunds. But at the same time, yeah, it had nothing to do with the actual downfall of Atari. They were, mm-hmm. they were just a powder keg that was yeah. everybody was sitting around with lighters ready to light it waiting i do like though he's he's a pretty funny character he's very willing to give interviews and he said you know with yar's revenge he's got one of the greatest games in history and with et he's got one of the worst so on a whole he feels like he has a pretty good legacy full, as spectrum, a, yeah. full spectrum as a video game designer
1: i wonder now too how he feels about it after everything that's happened As a result of this urban legend, digging it up, the aftermath, all of the interviews that have kind of reframed his narrative in a way that is more forgiving and more fact-based, I would say.
0: Yeah, because looking at a a whole, he did agree to do it. You know, so, I mean, he did take on something that was pretty crazy. However, he delivered. Because he delivered a game that was mediocre guess how many other designers did mediocre games for atari over the years Mm -hmm. do you think he ever thought oh this one mediocre game is going to be responsible for taking down an entire industry yeah no
1: no nothing was so i do
0: i do like that there is some redemption there it's pretty fun i also love that it became this urban legend Mm -hmm. so hopefully you guys really enjoyed listening to this i know i had a blast researching it it was
1: so fun and actually as we continue our little exploration of 80s urban legends if you have an idea please shoot it our way
0: yeah this is listener interaction here Whoa. 80s urban legends we'll yeah. start a list and we'll see what what comes our way and we'll start chipping away i don't know how often we'll do them
1: we'll take it to the dump and see what floats to the top <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, guys. Well, happy new year. Uh, man, what a fun way to start the new year. Yeah. I hope you're inspired to go play some Atari now.
1: Also to join us on Patreon.
0: Yes. If you want to join us at Patreon, <laughs> Raya, always swooping in with the Patreon <laughs> plug. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Laser Graves. Get involved. We've got fun stuff there. If you want to follow us, we're on Instagram at Laser Graves. You can also go to lasergraves.com to get all of our back episodes. We have a ton Mm -hmm. and if you want to follow our personal sites on instagram i'm at death at 33 rpm
1: i'm at mariah rose wimmer
0: that's what we got for you this week and we cannot wait to see you for the next one we will be back in two weeks (laughs) welcome to 2021 (laughs) bye bye